This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm thrilled about today's guest and our forthcoming discussions about human-computer interaction and interaction design for digital health and physical activity. Our guest is working as a lecturer in digital health at OpenLab and at the School of Computing at Newcastle University, UK. He describes himself as a digital media generalist focusing on human-computer interaction research. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Jan Smedink. Welcome, Jan. Thank you, Ali, for that kind introduction, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be your guest. Yeah, really nice to have you. So I don't know too much about science of, of human-computer interaction and interaction design, so could you tell me the basics of these themes? Yes. Um, so for human-computer interaction, it um, basically is a, is a discipline that brings a little bit of psychological, sometimes sociological elements into computer science, actually is more or less rooted in psychology um, in a subdiscipline called human factors. And mm-hmm. the basic thing that we address in this discipline again and again in all sorts of different contexts is really how can we make systems work well or better for people and then also at the same time what does it do to to people or groups of people to be working with digital systems and using them Mm. all right sounds sounds very useful field and and you are working in in physical activity so how does this work works in digital health and and physical activity so of course there are um, a lot of applications being developed nowadays and uh, there are a couple of things that um, that the angle that we bring i think can be quite um, helpful um, for example in making sure that the applications that we develop are not only useful from a medical point of view or that they produce interesting data, but also that that the way we interact with these technologies is actually beneficial and leads to patterns of positive use um, and and avoids, for example, addictive patterns or um, patterns where simply data is extracted from people by making them, I don't know, use certain devices more or less like tracking devices. Um, and, and the communication about all of this is quite key, and it's not easy to make things really work for people. Mm. So, so could you tell some examples how you have used this in, in digital health? Um, yes, there are, of course, um, various um, different um, studies. So you asked before, and I didn't uh, finish to explain, I think, about uh, interaction design. Uh, which is, of course, a, a, a related uh, subdiscipline um, in design, mostly um, that that has a close relationship to human-computer interaction, which is sort of like the more researchy way of looking at this. And the interaction mm. design part is more: how do we actually make that real? So engage in close work with actual participants and and users of the technology. Um, to figure out, um, you know, what do they really need? What are their abilities? Um, what are the um, limitations that a certain group may have or that a certain setting of use brings in to really closely consider this? And then in the in the process of creating solutions in such a design process, for example, to work highly iteratively, but then also to employ scientifically minded tools where necessary to make more Uh, deeply informed comparisons Um, uh, all these uh, bits are kind of important elements of our work when we try to come up with solutions that that really work well and that avoid misunderstandings in the communication between digital technologies and the users Hmm. and and how much do you see this 
these fields of research that how much is it how, how is the balance between theoretical research and actually kind of hands-on creating solutions it's a very interesting and exciting field i think for many um in that there is uh, quite a range of uh, different interpretations of how people find their places and their role within hci as the more researchy approach or interaction design as the more hands-on design oriented solution um, um, oriented um, practical side of things um, so it really depends on the role that one takes and also the the goals of a project we often engage in projects that have very clear research goals so then of course um, we use research methodologies even though um, human computer interaction often draws on qualitative methods uh, as well as quantitative methods um, so it can be that more classic research work, um, but it can also be very design uh, oriented. And we have modern approaches within human computer interaction that uh, very clearly reflect this. So um, not only do we normally do iterative developments where we come up with, um, you know, as soon as we have first suggested solutions or prototypes, um, we try to test them as soon as we can uh, in the real world to make sure that there is good alignment between what we're building and, you know, the situation, how it will be used and by whom it will be used. Um, so not only do we do this sort of iterative development and testing, um, but oftentimes there is a notion of participatory design, which, of course, as somebody uh, from Scandinavia, it's a it's kind of a Scandinavian um tradition um that has been brought into the field so you'll be well aware um that that it's it's this notion of of having um target users or end users or or stakeholders of your technologies kind of engage mm. in the different steps of how uh, a technology is uh, is created and then of in in even more modern approaches we we move into co-design um where it's even the goals of what is supposed to be built are um are built together with the uh, future stakeholders or the equivalent to co-design sort of this is very roughly speaking but there's a related concept in 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 research that goes down the line of action research where the the stakeholders take an active role in figuring out what the research should be about and how it should be approached mm. so so when you have this kind of co-design how does the process go and have you been actually doing this this kind of co-design projects yes so um this is again a, a, the exact nature of the approach depends on on the the specific project um but it it really means to to engage closely with uh, stakeholders from the start often this is where so in classic settings in a little bit more participatory um settings one would often do for example interviews in the beginning about specific topic that you already have in mind where you then go and try to build a little bit of a better picture about um you know the requirements and abilities of your stakeholders and hmm. with a more co-design approach, often this swaps to be a little bit more engaging, even in the original question finding. And um, so this can this can use uh, workshop techniques um, where there's a bit more freestyle discussion and open thinking in the beginning to even figure out what would be interesting to pursue. Um, sometimes this uh, makes use of um, ethnographically inspired methods. Full-blown ethnographies are rare because they're very time-intensive, but kind of mm -hmm. the idea of embedding yourself in an actual use context, at least for a brief period, to build a better understanding as a designer so that when you then, for example, engage in co-design workshops, um, it is less likely that you superimpose your own ideas and, and approaches to solutions on the actual stakeholders. Yeah, sounds like a very useful method for for product development also. So how do, how do you see, I'm, I'm working a lot with the activity trackers and wearables, how do you see this one? What kind of aspects you would think, think to find from, from human-computer interaction that 
hasn't been done now with many of the activity trackers and what do you think would would come up when when approaching more from this direction yeah there are a lot of interesting points of course um a lot of elements of what i just described have made their way into hands-on real-world development practices right so this is not like a holy grail solution and I'm, 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 I'm it's not that i'm thinking that nobody out there is doing this but from a research point of view there are some very interesting topics that appear that um that could do with more attention and that can uh, contribute um so to the to the to the whole area i think so um we see a lot of very interesting developments that are very much inspired and driven by the developments in sensor technology right the the um ongoing kind of shrinking of the footprint um, of of sensing technologies and the increasing throughput and accuracy they offer very exciting um, technological kind of capabilities and and then there is a certain tendency to to use that and say okay what is the most exciting technological thing that we can make happen with this um, and that is great because it, it leads to to new devices and approaches that do, do truly offer very interesting doors, new insights into, you know, daily behavior, um, physical activity, and so on. So it is really exciting, but it is also kind of easy once you go down that road to kind of lose track of what people actually need and how they might truly benefit um, from this. So um, not only is it important, of course, to keep an eye on what I think uh, most modern companies have caught up with pretty well, which is user experience. You need to make sure that devices not only function well, but so the classic usability element, but they also engaging and, and enjoyable to use. So that user experience element um, that that has originally been highlighted in these disciplines a little bit more in the 90s, early 2000s, this has really made it into broad use. Um, so what we are focusing on more and more nowadays is to make sure, for example, that societal impacts are considered, that um, that we work with um, groups in public groups um, that, that represent uh, interesting elements of the public um, that might otherwise be overlooked or that, that uh, aren't the primary candidates for consideration in such project development, for example, and to then ask questions, what does it do to these groups um, um, that these technologies are developed um, and, and how can they um, be considered and uh, how can we make sure that we um, yeah, kind of develop a good angle of societal impact. And a lot of this is really important. So we see that with the tracking technologies that are part of this that offer very interesting insights like if you think about like the whole trends of quantified self and also the medical side of things that is closely linked to that offers very interesting and exciting potential insights but at the same time they are also um potential downsides of of um, uh, such intimate uh, data collections and uh, and these need to be um considered as well so um this brings basically uh, a lot of of overarching angles that you can only really study and start to understand when you don't have the perspective of one individual product developer but when you can take a little bit more of an overarching perspective of what these technologies do mm, yeah that that makes all, all the sense so about societal impacts and downsides what what else do you see than the intimate data collection what what other other downsides you have you have found so we see a certain pattern that has been described using different terms um but where um so um one term that um, um a student uh, karen cutting that i'm working with has um built stemming from a different background but that also applies here is uh, justification practices and that is that there is a certain tendency to see digital systems um, that produce data as, as an easy kind of source of information that one can rely on to, to kind of externalize behaviors and make it so that it's not your own responsibility necessarily. Um, so you can say, well, the tracker said I moved enough, so I clearly have done enough. Or... 
um, the 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 tracker said I should be doing this, so I now need to, um, you know, go out and do my sports, and that in a social situation may, um, you know, keep you from engaging in meaningful ways with the people around you. Um, so so we see that sometimes these. Um, uh, technology-based solutions generate patterns that interfere in not ideal ways with social life, for example, and and that is something that that can easily kind of kind of creep up uh, into into behavior, and it's not always easy to spot and understand. Um, so we see that, for example, as one thing, or when we're looking into recent trends into um, using these these sorts of data that are generated to then form spontaneous individualized cohorts in medical sciences. This is a very interesting mm. capability that you gain to now say, look, I have somebody who displays this and that, I don't know, development in um, in their heart rate variability and it's potentially something to consider so then you can build a cohort of people who are similar and kind of look at their trajectories or you can even look mm. at treatment pathways and then you can you know you can produce a sort sort of uh, an output which is the most promising approach going forward and then there's a certain danger that this gets misused and interpreted as a black box sort of this is the only right response and we can we can take uh, individual responsibility out of the equation and that is something we clearly um think is is a, one of the problematic patterns yeah mm. now very very interesting point i i think this justification practices it's it's really interesting i'm always surprised how much people even people who know that it's quite simple sensors that are measuring something which is not really accurate and they they kind of believe like you said all right i i slept really badly it seems even though i felt that i slept better than ever and they they still kind of tell this story even when they know that the trackers are not usually not very accurate in in most of the variables they they provide yeah they they certainly invite over interpretation and uh yeah that that certain confidence in in and, and people are surprisingly willing to trust these systems and recommendations they put out and i think if uh, you know as you personally i think are very well informed how these devices really work and um let's say how narrow the bandwidth is of what these sensor devices actually capture about the full spectrum of meaningful human behavior, uh, then then mm. it's it's very clear that the breadth of these recommendations that are often made based on these narrow sensing um, and processing capabilities can only be very rough um, kind of recommendations. And and that these are these these. These are exactly the type of questions where, as a human-computer interaction researcher, you then start wondering, aha, okay, so how do we then, when we present outputs, when we present recommendations, make clear that this is understood without completely overcomplicating everything and making the output unusable, mm. right? So I'm not saying that these recommendations shouldn't happen or anything. It's just really important how you frame it and how you convey it and how you scaffold the interaction with a system because we understand these systems more or less as communication partners and the more interactive they are um, the more of a kind of a subconscious anthropomorphization happens in the background so um, yeah it, this is a really tricky area and it's becoming more and more relevant um, as the systems become more conversational um, and and we see a lot of um, the interaction with the systems start to um, kind of make use of sort of digital agents that imply that these systems are really, really smart. So we need to be aware of, um, you know, the, the things we imply and, and what sort of an impact that has on the users and stakeholders. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it gets really tricky because especially for consumer trackers and devices, you want to market as many features as you can even though many of them are not, not accurate. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. 
In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. So how do you see what should be the solutions that should you communicate differently that this is not maybe really accurate, trust your, yourself also? Or do you think some of the features should be left out which are not accurate? Yeah, I mean, there's this, there are these different layers of how we approach this. I mean, in a specific product development, you want to probably make sure that you go, do good iterative development and testing and that you also keep an eye on this after product release, right? That you make sure that you have some sort of feedback channels um, that that give you an honest picture of what's going on. And oftentimes, for example, having a, a simple questionnaire with predefined answers people will respond to that and and you will get some clear picture on the things you asked, but you never know what you overlooked to ask. So um, to, to, to use modern methods there on that side um, is very informing. And then at the same time, as a research discipline, we try to really do research projects where we take multiple of these different approaches and we start comparing them and see what works well, what doesn't work so well. Um, so we know that there's this complex relationship between um, how smart a system appears to be and and the sort of messages it then conveys. And um, yeah, that that's really something uh, where um, the, the discipline of human-computer interaction then oftentimes comes up with um, design recommendations. And that is something maybe that from a practical point of view, um, it that can be that can actually be a helpful you know way to to, make some use of what this discipline is outputting because we find that oftentimes there isn't quite as much close exchange between human-computer interaction, the research discipline, and then interaction design and user experience as it's practiced in the real world out there. There isn't quite as much exchange as there could be. And one easy way, really, if you if you want to kind of get the actionable outputs um, from the discipline is if you, if you look into... Um, kind of the, the research publications and then simply add as a search term design recommendations because a lot of um, the research work that is produced will try to close with with these sort of actionable outcomes of the research. And these might then tell you, for example, with a specific sort of, I don't know, chat-based communication system about your training goal achievements, um, how can you make sure that this is a there's a positive interaction that does not mislead the user and and is actually a positive experience? Mm. So you are probably quite uh, familiar with with the main design recommendations. Could you could you tell us some examples that have been laid out from the, from the research findings? Well, there's very basic things to to treat an interaction like a conversation that you want to keep friendly right um and um and then beyond kind of general things that have so far been very well encapsulated in terms of usability and user experience guidelines um it really depends on the use context and the type of technology you're building um but i i think a lot of this at the end of the day, comes across as uh, quite a bit of um, common sense, but it's it's really um, helpful to um, sort of, of look at these summaries. And there, I mean, there are really good um, resources that get compiled out of this. So um, I think you will find very good summaries of the actionable elements of all of this. For example, on interactiondesign.org as a um, as a free sort of resource. Um, collection um and mm. yeah At, beyond this it really it depends are, are we talking about a wearable are we talking about interacting with virtual reality are we talking about playful interaction are we talking about um uh, applications and technologies developed for i don't know use in businesses it, it really depends so it's hard to say mm. um to, to boil this down to to simple generalizable rules yeah yeah, maybe maybe one if we take one example that we have had for quite a long time we have had consumer activity trackers and and other kind of trackers also and 
And now there's there's the, this discussion of digital health and that you could go for the general practitioner, your medical doctor that with with your data, but but it should be accurate data and and how do you see the step like Apple Watch starts to have some kind of arrhythmias detection? What are the important points when we move from consumer activity trackers to more medical activity tracking that what should we consider making mm. this quite a big step? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the, there are many elements to this that have to work out um, in order to eventually reap the benefits that I think are really potentially there, even if the employed sensors aren't the most accurate and there may be kind of strictly medically oriented devices out there that are you know a bit more spot on i think there's still incredible value in these sorts of activities it's just difficult to make um to make real and to make come together so from a human computer interaction point of view again i would emphasize that it's very important to communicate clearly not only with the immediate users of the technology so that those people who would wear the activity tracker but also with the other involved stakeholders so medical professionals um, any intermediaries um, to really communicate clearly what it is that is captured and what is not captured so how far can i interpret this yes or no um, so so there's mm -hmm. this whole side of interacting with it there is a very very interesting element um, also closely linked to sort of data ownership and analytics, um, because I think that is what we need to sort. And my um, my thinking on this, and not only mine, but a lot of researchers are now starting very interesting projects um, down the line of like where is data ownership and also what are the protocols and procedures that we can apply to this data um, so that that becomes a little bit more transparent. So I really think that we need to do, even though it may not sound super exciting, but there needs to be a good consolidation work on sort of inter-exchange formats and open protocols um, that uh, allow like a liber liberalized exchange there. And uh, we really need to think about uh, data ownership as well. Um, you know, there's a certain pattern where... Um, with a lot of modern devices, the data basically gets collected by a company behind them, and there are good reasons for that to happen. Mm. Um, but uh, basically, the data gets sent away, and then um, the the people who wore the data then become customers in buying information back, and they may do that through paying more for the device front upfront, or it may be some sort of service subscription model to then get insights back. Um, but there's a side effect mm. of this that the data is locked away, so it can't easily be repurposed on the on behalf of the user for such sort of um, kind of diagnostics and and deeper insights linking it with other data so in order for this to happen i think industry needs to get together and we need to develop models where you know business can still function so profits need to work out somehow um, but at the same time we work towards open ecosystems where all this becomes more interchangeable and linkable um, I think that that is a very important kind of underlying development that we need to foster if we want really on a societal level to be able to reap the benefits that this um, that this holds. And I mean, it's in this current crisis, that's, that's a very clear point where you could easily anchor a discussion around potential benefits that, that you could see if you had, for example, somewhat persistent um, body temperature uh, assessment throughout the population. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. The body temperature measurement. Uh, do you know if there's anyone anyone working on that that at the moment? It, it's quite an interesting possibility. Mm, yes, I mean there are these um, kind of networked internet IoT enabled um, um, body temperature. Um, thermometers um, at least i think in the us there has been some very interesting um, data um, doing uh, facilitating basically foreshadowing of of um, 
well, um, sort of uh, feverish uh, conditions developments in certain mm. areas. Um, so, so this is certainly happening. Um, but even there, this is a company saying, look, we are collecting this data and, and we can contribute to these interesting patterns. And then on a kind of very high level, a government agency may approach them and they may get certain like derived data access um, to this. But I think in order to to really make this function, we need more like a marketplace thing that is also bottom-up enabled. So um, users of the technology need to be empowered to go and say, I want to make it possible so that my data is used for these and these purposes. And then again, it becomes a very interesting human-computer interaction question to to work on making sure that users understand what that means, what they're agreeing to, what the limits of such use are, to be able to review it, um, what happens to a digital legacy, um, you know, eventually with all this data footprint that is built up. That These are kind of very current issues that the discipline is working on, yeah. Mm. And, and how do you see now in the current situation that Apple and Google have have started working together with some kind of tracking application that we could we could trace the the disease better and then there's also some covid-19 trackers which work with the bluetooth i i saw that there was already some some device published that uh, a workplace can buy it and then it will track that who who were close to each other it works with the bluetooth uh, how do you see these technologies and what problems and pitfalls you see in this situation uh yeah this this is a, such a complicated um area overall so i think yes they they can clearly um deliver very potentially valuable insights and i think it's right that these get explored on the other hand we need to make sure that we um prevent misuse that we prevent as we said earlier over interpretation um that banks on the wrong side of the reliability of that um mm. data and insights that are actually enabled now as far as um, Google and Apple are concerned, I, I, they they are actually at at a size they engage closely with the research communities, um, and I think that at least the portions of these uh, protocols that I've briefly looked at, I have to say very briefly only, um, they seem to be open protocols and. Um, as if if that is the case then i'm all for it because that's exactly the thing you know as as uh, as a research field um th there are a lot of people working on this and it's possible to propose all sorts of things but at the end of the day there needs to be sort of um work in the on the practical side of things that is hand in hand with the um with the involved businesses and oftentimes the the giant ones do take a leading role there in establishing what then becomes a standard for exchange so yes keep a close eye on on that being as open um as possible um but i think it's a valuable development that we're now seeing and it's it's one of the ways that such a crisis can can also be an opportunity but again we need to take close look at what is collected and and i'm always um very interested in making sure that we can keep users empowered in this scenario yeah that that it's your right to say that my data is used for this and that and to to rethink data ownership because in in a simple way this is a drastic oversimplification but if you give your assets away and if so if data can be seen as a valuable kind of 21st century asset if you as a user keep on freely giving your assets away um then you can't expect to really have a voice in how these services are shaped um so i think that's a very interesting field to be working on and there's a lot of organizations that are doing that um not only working on positive use patterns and engagement patterns with technology that don't impede like our life as healthy social human beings but also that side of like trick kind of keeping um yeah control over your data and, and being well informed of what's happening uh, with this so i don't know for example mydata.org is a very interesting organization in in this regard hmm. this podcast is sponsored by fibian fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform 
It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian. From researchers to researchers. How do you see now it's a, it's a special situation in the world that even our right of movement is limited, whether it's within your country, uh, a lockdown or, or so on. So it's kind of against some of the basic human rights that there is a way to limit now and it's needed. Do you see that there's there might be some some uh, problems to the rights or we, we take away some rights, for example, that people can be tracked more closely in this situation? Or how do you see this from, from the digital point of view? Yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting and tricky question. And of course, um, human-computer interaction is a very interdisciplinary field. So we, we tend to kind of willingly give answers to very broad questions. Um, but I, I have to point out that that I'm not a public rights expert, um, not a policy expert. Um, so mm -hmm. I think this needs to be uh, discussed, and it is discussed on a societal level. Um, of course, there's a the certain danger, as you know, people in other areas have rightly um, pointed out that if we rush to install detailed uh, tracking and contact tracing now on a population level, then it's very important to consider ways that whether we want to dial this back or how it can be regulated moving forward. Um, I like the approach that um, actually, um, for example, in Germany, that they are developing um, sort of like um, data tracking and contact tracing applications, but they uh, frame that more like a um, a sort of willfully giving your data for a cause. And I think such a framing uh, can be very helpful. So there's a really big difference between making something available and, and even encouraging people to use it um, to, to contribute to a common cause for a certain period of time. Um, and then mm. to 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 be able to say, okay, this is it now. Uh, you know, three months later, I stop feeding my data. Uh, there's a big difference between such approaches and and um, say say for example, a mandatory obligatory installation of of a tracking app that in integrates deeply with say your mobile phone and stays there, and you have no clear say and no clear communication about what is sent away and. Uh, what somebody else can can derive from this data. Mm. And if I go a little bit backwards, you said about open data systems that they would the data would not be owned by a by a corporation. Who do you think would be the stakeholder to be able to do kind of global data bank that is not the corporation? Who do who do you think could could be a potential institute to do this? Well, we see a lot of very interesting kind of protocol-based work that works with establishing more free nodes where potentially um, users uh, can remain owners of their data. Um, but of course, uh, this can also be through a little bit more, um, well, uh, publicly oriented um organizations uh we can think about the not-for-profit space where um uh, data can be hold in the name held in the name of users but is not necessarily exploited um, for profit right um so and i there of course one might say okay it, it should be a, a I don't know, potentially even a, a government uh, supplying something like that as an infrastructure, but there are complications with that as well. So my intuition would be uh, to consider a sort of multi-actor landscape there. And, um, you know, if there is an organization that does some for-profit 
processing of your data for its own purposes and you trust it and it's clearly communicated um, what is happening, um, then that doesn't have to be, um, you know, a bad thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just um, a space that is growing ever more important and I think it requires... Um, yeah, good and well-considered uh, regulation in the long term and also um, much deeper study to really um, better understand the, the issues as they develop and, and kind of play a more and more relevant role in, in everybody's lives. Yeah. Mm. And, and we have had very interesting kind of general discussions about this field. So could, could you tell more about some of your project that you have done what what were the main findings and what have you have you done with with human interaction design um that's really a broad area of things um we engaged with i mean my current role is um in uh, focusing on digital health and there's uh, a lot of interesting things really um that um kind of come across there i can i can pick out a couple of very interesting things so for a while we were working in a range of projects on making all sorts of support programmes be they more playful or more of a serious notion for physiotherapy um customizable to individual users because that's one of the potential strong points of um, digital technologies in this space not only can they facilitate remote for example exercising um, and and uh, provide good objective overview of the development uh, but they can be highly customizable and and they can sort of like this sort of adaptivity or um, yeah customized patterns um, for development um, can happen and uh, one of the early things uh, we noticed there is just how much it can be noted by users if you if you make such customization happen. For example, we had a project focusing on Parkinson's disease patients, and there was a game where you would collect certain streaks of stars that were spread across the screen. Um, and they the, the pattern, the scale of the patterns would change depending on your individual development and basically move further away in order to make it a little bit more difficult or closer to you in order to make it a little bit more easy. And um, users quickly notice these patterns. So, um, And we noticed that that is a human-computer interaction problem um, because they were complaining, like, am I not good enough? So the game seems to make it easier for me. I don't like this. So, And then we identify these problems and we find a practical solution. So in this case, it was that we then internally rescaled the representation of the player and the player's reach. Uh, but we left the uh, visual appearance of the star streaks identical on the screen, if that makes sense. Um, mm. And that wasn't noticed anymore. And in this situation, it fixed the problem. But it is really context dependent. In some other situations, you may want to display such a development. You want, may want to make it visual and clear to um, to the users. And that is why um, this uh, yeah, th this uh, discipline is coming up more and more with processes about how to make sure most efficiently um, that, that we get these things um, somewhat right. <laughs> um, there are many other examples um, of, of interesting um, findings that, that um, come out of very practical concerns like that, yeah. Mm. And I, I think this kind of... Uh support programs for physio and and they are very relevant now in the as many people especially the risk group people are in self-isolation uh could, could you tell more about what did you learn from this kind of uh programs for for physiotherapy yeah one very interesting one is that you can make it work you know very nicely with patients um and they, you know, to, to a point where you can show that this works comparatively well, uh, depending on the measures, but comparatively well in terms of development, uh, for example, in functional reach um, to traditional therapy. But 
it is super important that the other stakeholders are not overlooked. So um, this means, um, for example, friends and family members who become bystanders and then completely change the context in, in how such a technology is used. And that also changes how the actual patients or primary users interact with it. Uh, another one is the, the role of uh, the professionals, in this case, physiotherapists. If they don't like it, this will never take hold. If the configuration that they need um, for an individual um, a patient to be using this technology exceeds, I don't know, 90 seconds to 120 seconds, there's simply no way that they can make it work in their daily lives. Um, so the technology, no matter how good for the patients, will see no adoption. All these things um, come from that kind of close consideration in context, which um, you know, it's easy to overlook in product development, but it's just incredibly important um, if you want to make things right and, and work for people. That's what I said in the in the very beginning. Um, yeah, and there, there are other things with therapists. We um, had uh, oftentimes they, they do their own sort of ad hoc interpreted use of technologies, and this happens with wearables as well. Um, so, so to stick with the example that I said earlier, uh, just just a minute ago, with the um, with the kind of movement based rehabilitation support programs, um, we see ad hoc recontextualization where they say, "Oh, yeah, I might use your software um, to to make adjustments for the user or to to tell it how to adjust automatically with it within which safe." Um, kind of limits, but I could also just put this balance board in front of it and, and have my patients use it with that. So these sorts of uh, recontextualizations um, are, are very interesting um, to observe and hard to predict. And we see that with support technologies. We built a very fancy um, customization tool um, for therapists once where they could use a 3D figurine on a tablet and then basically manipulate it into certain extreme poses or kind of enact with the thumb by grabbing like the little arm of a 3d figurine and moving it around to basically tell our software what is the movement range that a certain patient can safely do right so that we can then have automatic adjustments within mm -hmm. these boundaries now they found that very interesting and better than the kind of parameter based how many degrees sort of interface we had before um, but the most use that they said they wanted to take out of this tool was actually to use it as a foundation for communication, both with their patients and with colleagues, um, about what patients can do or when they, um, you know, hand a patient over from one colleague to the other to then uh, be able to clearly communicate what the development has been and, and, and what they consider um, good limits or working goals to be. So, um, so these sorts of things um, require the sort of close work with the participants, right? And this is why I said earlier, we have this development, um, not only checking iteratively and, and in a regular um, sense whether technologies work within a predefined setting that we as researchers or practitioners come up with, but to really work actively with the stakeholders um, taking quite a role either through participatory work or even like proper co-design um, in and and then these sort of patterns can can come up and emerge and we can can make good use of them mm. and and with this support programs for physios did you have other other technological features than than a video call and then this kind of 3d figuring uh, oh yeah, there was. <laughs> this is a multi um, multiple research projects spanning sort of um, effort. So yes, uh, one thing I was um, thinking about again um, uh, the other day that's a really interesting um, feature when you when you want to think about uh, things uh, taking hold in in the real world right now, for example, is really the questions: How can the individual practitioners still stay in contact? Um, with their patients right and in, in the remote situation mm. that we're facing now so the interesting questions aren't necessarily about how can we replace in-place technologies um with with sort of 
things that people can use at home, um, but also how can we keep that communication and engagement that comes from it up between um, practitioners and professionals and and the uh, and patients, and how can we, um, yeah, really kind of make sure that that communication and guided treatment can still happen. And there's a lot of interesting developments there, of course. Um, moving now more and more from of course the kind of common sense integrations with video-based work that you can do here um and then of course more recent developments into the kind of virtual reality augmented reality spaces yeah mm. this podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is dr paul batman and i'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good valid information. And and how how do you see at the moment? It's there's the risk groups are self isolating and and for them physical activity maybe some kind of rehabilitation movements if they are in rehab it's very important. But now they are in isolation. How do you see the distance coaching? How could it work in this this situation? Yeah, I mean, this is a very exciting um, time in in that regard because um, it's it's now like well, these sorts of um, deployments of new ideas and explorations of new concepts now ha- happen um, at at breakneck speed and at, at a much larger kind of saturation than what we had before. I mean, of course, people have been working on 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 this uh, for many years now. Um, but we now see a wide um, scale uh, sort of deployment that that is just very interesting. Um, and it's also interesting to note that the um, most stable foundations um, seem to enable really quite a bit already. So video-based work, uh, simply a reliable back and forth communication channel can already do a lot. And um, making sure that that happens um, in in a kind of uninterrupted and and uh, fluid manner is very important. But then at the same time, there are really good tools um, that have been developed and purpose built really for enabling sort of yeah remote instruction and also um, remotely checking whether um, you know exercises are executed correctly. Um, that that are proving immensely valuable, I think um, now. So, one of the main things in in a, in a very crude way, you can compare these um, um, technologies in in this specific space of of physiotherapy exercise um, kind of execution and tracking. The baseline for that is a piece of paper, right? Uh, is a piece of paper with a couple of scribbles of uh, or or pictures, photos of how to execute the exercises. And that can be very helpful, um, but then you have no way of seeing whether somebody is actually executing the movements correctly. And that actually, even before this situation, is is not really ideal because then people come into the practice every few weeks um, and there's a brief opportunity to check whether execution is done correctly um, but then people go off and do it on their own for two weeks and um, oftentimes it's not executed in the right ways or repetition sets get forgotten and misinterpreted or misreported. Not always, you know, in bad faith, mm-hmm. it just happens. Um, so there's a, an immense value that digital technologies, be it camera-based tracking or body-worn sensors, um, can bring in this space and and are already, are already de- delivering on yeah yeah so do you think in the future we will be when we're building houses that we will build a separate room for camera based tracking or some kind of thing where we, we can actually use all the new technology effectively yeah that's a good question how far in the future are we talking <laughs> <laughs> um so so i i think um, really that um 
there is quite a good chance that camera-based recognition will improve um, to such a degree that you know, basically putting one or two cameras anywhere, um, even in an ad hoc manner, um, would enable you to interpret body movements even of multiple people in a scene in a rich enough way to facilitate this. So I don't know whether the houses will necessarily be built pre-equipped, but it, it will certainly be very common that um, tracking equipment is in an individual's exercise room in a house, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So it has been very, very interesting points. I think we are running out of time soon. So a few questions. Uh, where do you see the scientific field of uh, human-computer interaction going in the future? Well, very interestingly, uh, so so basically there's much more work to be done even on really understanding what it means uh, for society to be interacting with digital systems we already have, with uh, you know, the, the more and more important role that smartphones and computers play in our lives the embedded systems uh, field is very interesting and then we have two i think major developments that are up and coming um, one is alternate and mixed realities um, virtual reality augmented reality and our interaction um, in these spaces both with digital systems and with each other as it's mediated through this entirely new sort of channel um, mm. That is one big thing. The other big thing is interaction with AI and its physical manifestation through robotics. And these already exist as subfields in the in the area. And um, that'll be very, very interesting to see how it develops. Closely related to that, as we start augmenting ourselves more and more with wearables and sensing that gives us really access to perceptions that we did never have before as humans, we are in a way becoming, uh, for lack of a better term, cyborgs. And that will become more and more extreme up to a point where I think we will need something like, a, a, I don't know, a, a center for superhuman and cyborg computer interaction um or something like that and and this are really mm. interesting fusion disciplines that are just coming to arise in the field yeah yeah very very interesting future direction so uh in the end could you tell what kind of projects you are interested in and and if you're looking for some kind of collaboration what what could that be um well thanks for asking that of course um the the main future reaching directions are really interesting for like long-term considerations and in 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 the meanwhile i think these topics we had earlier we we have some some larger scale projects ongoing about um sensor devices and combining multiple sensing devices with the same person to understand certain important concepts of daily life living like physical activity or fatigue um from this multi-sensor angle so there's uh, much more work that remains to be done there and then um also more more close kind of um, term near-term developments i think that are really interesting are around these kind of patterns of data recording and data use and how we can enable good communication about what is sent and stored where that gives a fair view to the users you know we have this trend with open data, for example, nowadays, um, that a, a lot of governments and also private institutions are encouraged to to open up a lot of data. And we see that happening more and more. Sometimes um, this is pushed for by policy. Sometimes this is done on free terms. But oftentimes this is put out in formats that aren't very easy to understand or to link up at all. So I think there's a lot of interesting work that remains to be done there, both in terms of user control and understanding and then also uh, allowing interactions, allowing kind of community-based analytics um, to to arise um, that that are very interesting areas for for more immediate um, work. Yeah. Mm. So if if any of the listeners are interested in collaboration in multi-sensor systems or open data protocols, please be in contact with with Jan. Uh, Thank you for the discussions. I think there was really a lot of things I learned and it, it really made sense. You made it really easy to understand. And I think it's it's really important 
work you are doing. So thank you for sharing your knowledge. Yeah, thanks again uh, for bringing me into the the podcast, Oli. And uh, yeah, it was really, I think, an enjoyable discussion. And thanks for asking so, so many interesting questions today. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.